three days past <laughs> Halloween. <Yay>. Spooky season. <sighs> I bought my Halloween candy today. I did too, just now when I was getting really? cocktail ingredients. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I was like, now's the moment. It because is. if you buy it too far ahead of time, you eat it all. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> I was like, I've already I'm done that now. <laughs> <laughs> so, and I had to hide it from fiance right. because he will eat all of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I really want to have trick-or-treaters this year. It's yeah, like really right. our first year post-COVID, you know, where like people are feeling really comfortable again right. and I want some goddamn trick-or-treaters. <laughs> so I got the candy. I got mainly Reese's because the Reese's pumpkins, the little mini ones are so good. So good. They're yeah. like the Reese's eggs. Yeah. But smaller. Right. And I love it. And I also got the little white chocolate ghosts. Because so. I'm not a huge fan of the Reese's trees. I think they're too big. Yeah, the Reese's trees, a little too big. Shape's not ideal. But yeah. like the pumpkins and the eggs, you're getting the most peanut butter to chocolate ratio, ratio which is mm-hmm. what you want. Because right. frankly, the regular peanut butter cup can't compare to the holiday treats. You don't think so? No. I love I the ruffly edge, so. though. I love the ruffly edge. I like the ruffly edge, but it's too much chocolate for me. Oh, oh. Yeah. Too much chocolate. I like mm. more of the peanut butter. And I also like the softer texture. You know, you just kind of melt into a pe- like a, a peanut butter pumpkin. Interesting. I think the peanut butter egg, peanut butter cup egg is a little too thick. Really? In the center. Interesting. Without enough chocolate. No. I like but the... there's no wrong way. That's true. To eat a Reese's. <laughs> We're not here to talk about candy. We're here to talk about history. On the rocks. With Katie. And Allie. This is a podcast where we talk about famous women in history. We talk about good women and bad women and fictional women and non-fictional women from all times and places because women have nuance. But keep in mind, we are drinking the entire time. And we're not historians at all. This tonight is something Katie knows a lot about. Yeah, this is my total wheelhouse, all of this. Um. Not me. I was like (laughs) in deep. It's so interesting too because so like I am doing a very famous murder victim. You are doing a very famous serial killer. And it's just funny because... These are two stories that, like, mine has always baffled me, and it bothers me because we still haven't solved it. And then yours, I feel bad. I have never been that into Eileen Warnos. She's not my favorite killer, which sounds (laughs) awful, but... (laughs) mystery surrounding it no that's not that's That's, your problem that's my problem with it it's a little too straightforward Mm. um um but before we get that's it right we don't have we have anything else to say yeah no i think that's right okay (laughs) but before we get into uh their stories we need to tell you something because maybe you're out shopping for halloween candy and you're trying to figure out which peanut butter cup which peanut butter style treat you are going to hand out to your trick-or-treaters slash keep for yourself. Yeah. Um, so we're going to describe what they look like so you don't have to pull out your phone, put it back in your pocket, and then get accused of shoplifting the candy. Right. We don't want that for that would you. Be terrible. We don't want that for anyone. Mm-hmm. No more people in jail. Um, <laughs> ever. Just kidding. <laughs> um, so we're going to describe them for you. We're going to get a little physical, physical. Allie, who are you doing and what does she look like? So I'm doing Eileen yeah. Warnos, <laughs> as we said. She's typically seen as herself as a middle-aged woman who mm-hmm. has a hardened face in her mugshot. Uh, in her younger years, she was really quite lovely with a very like 70s-esque style. She had blonde hair and deep brown eyes, but she does have a really like creepy mm-hmm. large smile. Um, and the top level of her teeth are kind of crooked. And um 
she's usually seen in an orange jumpsuit <laughs> and she spent uh you know her last decade on death row so most of her pictures are behind bars or in yeah. the court of appeals mm wild so that is what eileen warnos <laughs> looks like but i did see childhood photos of her and like photos before she kind of became the hardened criminal that she is yeah so i am doing elizabeth short aka the black dahlia uh elizabeth was by all accounts a beautiful young woman she was 5'5 five five, weighed 115 pounds she had light blue eyes this dark black hair um, not so good teeth, apparently. Uh, she had very pale skin, a moon-like face with a rounded jaw and a prominent forehead. Um, there are a lot of really cute pictures of Elizabeth smiling or posing. Her hair is always just like big and black and like very curled. But I think that one of the most striking photos of her is a straight on shot with her hair kind of wild and blown back. That was unfortunately a mug shot she got when she was underage drinking. <laughs> but look at this photo of her. Isn't that wow. startling? It is startling. Like that looks like it could be in like one of those high fashion photo, yes. like Vogue style magazines. Yeah. Like wow. instead of like smizing, like smiling with her eyes, I feel like she's like frowning like yeah. frowning with her eyes she like she just looks very intense like someone call tyra yeah <laughs> <laughs> tyra i got a new idea for you <laughs> she's just coming out with some ice cream stop she should <laughs> i mean why not capitalize on the word you made up how yeah. many people get to say that yeah you know what i'm saying to she, make up a word her and dr seuss that's it <laughs> and webster and webster <laughs> she also like wrote a book about being like a model but it's like set in like an alien world it's perfect bananas <laughs> anyways good. um <laughs> good for her so uh you want to know what you're drinking i do it looks adorable <laughs> okay so this cocktail is called cereal and vodka instead of cereal and milk and it is rum chata mm -hmm. vanilla ice cream peach vodka Ooh. and you put it all in a blender so it makes a little milkshake vibes and it's a little thinner than a milkshake because there's a lot more like liquid to ice cream ratio mm -hmm. and then you sprinkle the top with the colorful fruity pebbles not the cocoa I, pebbles not the cocoa the fruity cheers mm. that is so good it's a really good cocktail well and like the peach almost makes it feel like the milk like it almost makes it taste like cereal milk the milk that you drink at the end yes, right? that's yeah it makes it taste <laughs> like it's so good yeah i love this yeah it's a really nice cocktail i hope that you all make this one and mm. serve it at your homes on halloween if you want it to be more spooky you can do cocoa pebbles but no, you're like count chocolate or something yeah something on the top but yeah, the fruity pebbles look and taste so good and they go really well with the peach yeah mm. all right so what do you know about eileen warnos Okay. I know that she is like touted as like the most famous female serial killer. Obviously, I feel like those people didn't know Belle Gunness. Um, or yeah. like <laughs> Madame Lou Laveau. Or like Madame, or yeah, Marie Laveau. Not yeah, Marie Laveau. That's who it is. Madame Delphine Lalaurie. Yeah. yeah. And like <laughs> all the other queen. women. Who's the woman that we did? We did that witch lady who lured the girls in Ireland, Alice Kepler. Oh, right. And then that woman, 
the woman who like bathed in the blood oh, of right. we've the, done a lot Matt Bathory or whatever yeah, yeah Elizabeth Bathory Elizabeth Bathory we've done yes. so many female we've done heroes. a lot of female killers but I feel like Eileen takes the cake because she was kind of in that realm of like the 70s male serial killer and like 70s to 80s when like it felt like serial killers were at their height and when it was a new <laughs> vocab word yeah exactly and I felt like it was shocking she was like a lesbian and then she had like her girlfriend who's played by Christina Ricci in the film Charlize Theron played her she looked so much like her Mm -hmm. I hope that costume department won an Oscar they got a lot of Oscars okay good she won for best actress good I think everyone in that I never saw the film but like I think Mm -hmm. that everyone in that film deserved it because she looked so much like her yeah um so I know that she mainly killed truck drivers uh, I feel like Eileen had a, a long history of like sexual assault and that's kind of where it started. And then I think she just kind of liked doing it after a while. Like, I think that it definitely started off as maybe defense or trying to like just get by. And then I think it turned into her just liking doing it. That's my own personal theory. Mm. Um, but also I haven't heard the story in a while, so yeah. I'm excited to get into it. <laughs> Eileen's so, so interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, and monster is a movie, obviously, that is a part of this. A lot of it is fictionalized. A lot of the pieces of it, even they made Christina Ricci, who plays her girlfriend, they even gave her a different name mm. because her girlfriend was so fictionalized in the movie. She does have a girlfriend in real life, yeah. but just their parts were so different. So they were just like, ah, let's just change her name. Um, and also that woman's still alive. So right, like, yeah. you can't... Um, I don't know, but that was a, obviously a really good source. And then I watched a 60 Minutes. I watched a whole bunch of interviews. She was interviewed all the oh, time yeah. on Death Row. And then uh, her, I watched her biography. Um, and it's just called The Biography of Eileen Warnos. Yeah, because I feel like she also went back and forth a lot when she was on Death Row. Like, sometimes she would be like, no, like, you know, I feel really bad. I didn't mean to do that, you know. And then she'd be like, fuck those guys. Like- yeah. <laughs> That's exactly how okay, she good. was. <laughs> So we're going to talk about Eileen. All right, Here we let's go. do it. Eileen Carol Pittman was born in Rochester, Michigan on February 29th, 1956. So she's like around our parents' age. Yeah. Her mother was Diane Warnos and was only 14 when she married Eileen's dad, who oh, was wow. 18. Mm. His name was Leo. Her parents had a violent and tumultuous marriage Mm. in march uh of 1955 this is her parents diane her mom found out she was pregnant and has her first firstborn child keith this is two years into the marriage she finds out she's eight months pregnant with eileen but she filed for divorce from leo Mm -hmm. she's like 16 years old Mm -hmm. has one kid pregnant with another he's kind of terrible um So she's got these two kids and she tries to handle it on her own, but has to go back to her parents. Mm. Eileen never met her father. He was incarcerated at the time of her birth. And then to avoid some sort of prison sentence after that, he joined the military for the U S and, um, then he was diagnosed with schizophrenia and later convicted and sent to prison for raping a seven year old girl. Oh my God. So her dad is not a good, like, starting point. Even though she never met him, I'm sure her hearing stories about him growing up Mm -hmm. um, is probably not beneficial. Mm -mm. 
he later uh, took his own life by hanging himself in prison. Oh, my God. So we're in January 1960. Eileen's four years old, and her mom walks out on them, mm. leaves the two kids with her parents never to return. Oh, my God. And reclaim them. And as a kicker, both her grandparents, who legally adopt them, are angry alcoholics. Mm. So this, it's just not, she's not starting off with a full uh, deck of cards. Mm. Both she and her brother, Keith, like I said, are legally adopted. But her granddad is super strict. They also have their own other two children living there that are way older. Oh, yeah. Because remember, her mom was only 16 when she came back around. So, like, siblings are going to be around the same age. And those siblings were like, yeah, our dad was really strict. He would, like, hit us when we did something wrong. He would, like, beat us with his belt. You know, he was, like, a very stereotypical dad from that era. So now she's lost her father and her mother. She's four. Her caregivers are alcoholics. And Mm. she has explosive temper tantrums. Just explosive. The way you were kind of describing at the beginning where she'll say one thing and then be like, fuck that. Yeah. She's -hmm. she's like that as a four-year-old child. Mm. Because of this, other children don't like her. Mm. So Keith, her brother, is kind of her only friend. So they fought like typical siblings, but they also loved like typical siblings. They were really close and then really far away. But the problem is they were both really traumatized. And by the time she's 10 years old, her and her brother were having sex. So they're experimenting sexually. Oh, no. They're only about 18 months apart, and it's, bo- not, it's not a non-pressure situation. They're both doing this willingly. But then by the next year, Eileen starts to branch out to other guys. So she's 11 years old, and she finds out that having sex is not a big deal to me. And I can make money off of this. So she starts receiving cigarettes, drugs, and food in exchange for having sex with her male classmates. And from the documentary, it sounded like everybody in this town knew it was happening and did nothing about it. Like, this girl needs help. What are you guys doing? No one is stepping in. Yeah. So she'd sneak out of her house at night. They'd all meet up in fields, as you did in this era, and just all have parties and drink. And um, it was just bad because her her grades are slipping in school. Her grandparents don't know that she is having sex in exchange for things, but they do know that she is misbehaving. Mm -hmm. So her grandfather gets more and more violent. Her and Keith would sometimes run away from the house, but eventually be caught and brought back. And... Then they'd send her to like a reform school for a little while and then have her back home. Mm-hmm. So she's bouncing around all the time. But then around this time, and it's really sad because she wrote a letter towards the end of her life on death row where she said, I was having sex with so many people. It made sense that I would eventually get raped. And that is such victim blaming yeah. for her as like a 14 year old girl mm-hmm. to end up getting raped. But that is what happened. Um, and apparently it was an older guy in the neighborhood, like a friend of her grandfather who oh like one of the gosh. people who should have been trying to help her, yeah. but she gets raped and gets pregnant. So her grandparents, when she's six months pregnant, sent her to a home for unwed mothers. They're like, you're going to go. You're going to give the baby up for adoption. And she didn't have a problem with that. She wanted Mm -hmm. to give the baby up for adoption. But what she had a problem with is that she was never allowed to see her baby ever. She never even got to see him once. And she didn't get any counseling. It was like, have the baby, go back to your house, pretend it never happened. Oh, God. So many 
girls went through that. Yeah. Oh my God. We interviewed a woman who wrote a book about it. Mm-hmm. So it's just, it was so common and it was just really sad because nobody was helping her. Yeah. So as soon as she gets back, she's like, okay, I'm dropping out of school. And then her grandmother dies. And then her grandfather is tired of having a difficult teenager. So he kicks her out. Mm-hmm. So now she's literally on the streets as a 16-year-old girl, and she is supporting herself through sex work and living in the woods in fucking Michigan. It's cold as hell in Michigan. It's so cold. Yeah. And this is when her petty crime records kind of start. She's 16. She's wandering around aimlessly. She's, you know, doing drugs and drinking and hitchhiking, and she's kind of going around the country, starting to go west for, like, five years. She ends up in Colorado, and she's really kind of, like, having sex all along these major highways, which is really dangerous. And a lot of times... Um, this type of sex work, survival sex work, like as soon as the guy gets what he wants, he turns violent and like treats you like shit because they're, I don't know what they're feeling, rage, embarrassment, anger, or control. I don't quite understand it. Yeah. I think there's like a big part of it. That's like, Oh, look what you made me do. Mm. You know, like, like you're disgusting. So like, I'm mad at you, even though like they should be mad at themselves. Right. But like, it's almost like they're blaming, like victim blaming, like they're yeah. blaming this sex worker for being so tempting that they right. had no choice but to go out and find a sex worker, right. you know, it's like for providing a service. <laughs> yeah. And I know there's probably like a lot of other just like really there's a lot of fucked up psyche behind a lot of this. Oh, but, yeah. Um, but yeah, and I think it's also like when you think of someone as an object, you don't have a problem with, you know, being violent with being them, violent with them mm-hmm. as soon as you got what you wanted. Yeah. Absolutely. So by age 18, she was arrested for driving under the influence and disorderly conduct and firing a 22 caliber pistol at a moving vehicle. Um, And then, of course, she got charged because she failed to appear in court for that. She is tired of the cold Michigan, Colorado thing. So she finally hitchhikes to Florida. She's thinking, I can do this same job in Florida and it can be warm. So I'm going to go there. So... She goes to Florida and meets this 69-year-old yacht club president named Louis Fell, and they get married. Whoa. Like, immediately. Okay. He's, he's almost 70 years. president? Yeah. He's almost 70 years old. She's, like, 18. Remember, she is very pretty. Yeah. Um, they announce their nuptials in the local newspaper, but she can't control her, temp- her temper. This is her best shot at a good life right here. Yeah. Like. And I know that's, like, terrible to say, but, like, she could have just settled down, waited for him to die, and then, like, gotten all his money. Mm-hmm. Um, she does not. Mm. She continually involved herself in confrontations at local local bars and is in and out of jail. And, I mean, within nine weeks of them getting married, she had hit him with his own cane, and he had a restraining order oh, out on God. her. So they get their marriage annulled very, very quickly. But then her brother dies, Keith, the only person in her life who's like kind of stuck by her side and has been constant, dies. And he left her $10,000 from his life insurance. So now she's got Um, (laughs) $10,000. But she immediately gets charged with drunk driving again and has to pay that fine and then spends all of the money in two months. (gasps) She bought a new luxury car. She crashed the car. She did this. She did that. 
So by the age of 22, she is in such a bad mental state that she attempts to take her own life by shooting herself in the stomach. When she's at the hospital, she tells the doctors, like, hey, since I was 14, I've tried to take my life six times, my own life. I have tried to take my own life. Oh, my gosh. And again, they treat her for her wounds and do very limited psychological counseling. What? Just turn her back out on the streets. This woman who wants to kill herself and is in and out of jail. So then she has like a string of guys that she dates on and off. Um, But she does crazy crimes. Like in a bikini, she broke into this mini mart and stole $35 $35 and like cigarettes. Sounds very Florida. It's exactly. Florida. Yeah. <laughs> and she like held them up at gunpoint. That's like a felony. You yeah. Can, yeah. Even if it's only $35, but then she's like trying to get away and the car overheats. Oh my God. So she's found guilty and she's in prison for three years where she's reading the Bible. She's complaining about the fact that she's with lesbian inmates, which that's going to come back around. Yeah. And she's complaining about wanting to get back to her boyfriend. But as soon as she gets out again, she gets in trouble for trying to pass forged checks and then for having a revolver and ammunition that don't belong to her. By 1986, she is arrested for stealing a car, for taking her aunt's identity. Again, she has more stolen guns. This is like the 1980s. She's taken into police custody because this guy who was a companion of hers accused her of pulling a gun on him at the end of her services and demanding $200. So he turns her into the police. He's like, she can't do that. And this is where I just need to say, I don't excuse anything she did. She is a cold-blooded murderer. But the system failed her time and time again. She had a shitty childhood, which a lot of people have shitty childhoods and don't make these decisions. But this girl needed help. Her school teachers, her neighbors, social workers, the penitentiary system that is supposed to, like, rehabilitate people, the hospital. Nobody helped this girl. And it's really tragic because it could have saved not just her life, but the the lives of all these men that she murdered. Mm -hmm which is just shocking. At this point, Eileen in and out of prison, having sex up and down 95 in Florida. She has no relationship that ever works. So she starts going to gay bars and she falls hopelessly in love with the 24 year old Tyra Moore. She is hotel cleaning staff, trying to make ends meet. The two are fast friends, move in together almost immediately, are like fully in love. Um, And Eileen is just excited to be able to support her with her life as a sex worker. Mm -hmm. She just wants this relationship to work. She said of Tyra when she was quoted later in interviews, It was love beyond imaginable. Earthly words cannot describe how I felt about Tyra. And she said that she was still in love with her shortly before her execution. So her sister did say in the documentary, and I think that this just might be like there weren't words to describe this at the time, but her sister said she didn't believe that Eileen was a lesbian, but just that she loved the stability of the relationship. But I don't think we had good words to describe bisexual Mm -hmm. at the time. Yeah. I totally agree. Yeah. Yeah. So, cause it's also like, I do think that 
she was sexually attracted to men, but I think that she wasn't emotionally attracted to men, Mm -hmm. you know? And I think that's, and I think she was sexually attracted and emotionally attracted to women. It seems like, you know? So it's, again, it's like, we just didn't have a word for that. Yeah. A a way to put that, especially not for a person so despised as Eileen Warnos. Like no one wants to, you claim her like yeah exactly <laughs> <laughs> the famous bisexual yeah. serial killer how we love her okay but even the two of them eileen and tyra are nomads they move from place to place they you know she's working the highways by day tyra stri- tries to get her to stop doing sex work she's like she just wouldn't give it up like i tried to tell her we can do other things to make money i loved her i cared about her it's dangerous but she wouldn't stop doing it yeah. um and she also said that eileen would always explode at people like even if you're in the grocery store eileen would be like why'd you look at me like that oh and tyra gosh. was like it was actually really embarrassing sometimes how she would just snap all of the sudden i wouldn't be able to handle that Mm-mm. Mm-mm. But Eileen called her her wife, and she provided for her and just loved her unconditionally. So she had been a sex worker for over a decade at this point, and her looks are taking a beating. And because of that, it's getting really hard for her to find clients. And she feels like if I don't make any money, I'm going to lose this relationship because I'm providing for Ty. So this is when the murder spree started. In a period of 12 months, Eileen murders seven men. I didn't realize it was that short. Mm -hmm. Oh, my God. Between the ages of 40 and 65. Now, in her court case, it's really important to be said that she did start by pleading self-defense. And over time, the story changed back and forth over and over again. And I think she really is just confused. I don't think... She was insane. Mm-hmm. I think she was in the right state of mind. But sex workers deal with a lot of violence. Mm-hmm. And I just, there's two stories out there. Yeah. One, she would say, is I was a sex worker for a long time. I got fed up with men being violent with me. So I started killing the violent ones. Because mm-hmm. there was lots of guys she had sex with in between the ones she killed that yeah. she didn't kill. Mm-hmm. And then second is, her second story is, I killed them. It's first degree murder. And I did it to steal their cars and take their money. Mm-hmm. She said both all the way up till her death. So I think both can be true at the same time. Yeah, I think so too. Her first murder was Richard Mallory. He was 51 years old and the owner of an electrician store. Eileen reported that he beat, raped, and sodomized her after they drove to an abandoned area for sexual service. She says, I killed him in self-defense. And again, this is her first victim. So that holds to your theory Mm -hmm. earlier. It became known that he was previously convicted for rape in Maryland. Whoa. Uh-huh. As part of the trial. Two days after his murder, um, his abandoned vehicle was found and his body was found several miles away. He had been shot several times and two bullets struck his left lung, um, which was found to be the cause of death. He, his body was covered up with old carpets and she just kind of drove off. Apparently, she got home, and this is what Tyra says, And Eileen was like, Tyra, I just killed a guy. And Tyra just doesn't believe her. Tyra's like, you're all talk. Because, I mean, the way that she is, it's just kind of sporadic. And they're nomadic, so they get up and move to a new place, you know, a new apartment. Um, But Eileen says, she's like, I took care of the car. I wiped down the fingerprints. I covered all the stuff from the car in sand and just bailed on it. 
It was a cold case for a while, and wow. the police are really struggling. Ty thought, okay, even if she did kill this guy, she got it out of her system, her frustration, and never reported it to the police. After a six-month break, she killed three guys back-to-back. Um, and it kind of seems like once she knew that she could get their cash and just kind of leave them and get away with it, that she was ready to do it yeah. again and again. So David Spears is next. He was 49 years old and a construction worker. His naked body was found on Route 19 in Florida. He had been shot six times with a 22 pistol. Third was Charles Carsacton, and he was 40 years old and a rodeo worker. He was shot nine times. His body was found wrapped in an electric blanket and fairly decomposed when it was found. But... Eileen was seen in possession of his car and pawned his gun. Mm. Fourth was Peter Seam. He was 65 years old and a retired merchant seaman. He left Florida to drive to Arkansas, but never made it. His car was seen being abandoned by Eileen and Tyra in Orange Springs. Now, at this point, Ty is really scared. I think Eileen only ever confessed to one murder to her, But Tyra's starting to put all these pieces together. And she's like, if I try to leave Eileen, is she going to kill me? Like, what is happening? I'm really scared. I don't know who to tell. Mm -hmm. And the police, they're clueless. Because there's not a real pattern. Yeah. It's a female killer. So Mm -hmm. they don't, they're not looking for a female. They never are. They never are. The body is being left really far away from the victim, which is Mm -hmm. also very, very strange. Mm -hmm. And it's just like a unique style. It's all the same kind of gun. They're all being shot, but like in different ways. Right. It's not like a, it's almost like, is there one person just doing this or are all these guys just having some bad luck? Because like, it's also not a super rare thing. I feel like, like truck driving. Cause I think a lot of these guys are like blue collar kind of truck driver kind of guys, you know, who are out on the road late at night. And like, I feel like that's also kind of like, well, they're high targets also for being robbed by anybody, you know? So like, like. some of them are tied up. Some of them aren't. Right. Or like, no, none of them are tied up. But some of them are dressed. Some of them aren't. Some mm-hmm. of them are wrapped in blankets. Some of them aren't. There right. isn't like a serial killer like stamp on them. Yeah. It's I just feel like they all have a tell, right? Like usually? Usually. Yeah. And that to me kind of means like some of it could have been self-defense because like some of them she shot and they were completely naked. Some Mm -hmm. of them, they're fully dressed and Mm. she like, maybe they went after her after they got dressed or before they got, you know, naked or like, I, I don't know. Or maybe she just waited until she realized how much money they had and then stole their car, stole their wallet. Right. Like maybe sometimes she didn't even wait for anything to happen. She was just like done. Maybe felt cause like, again, it's like she is prone to these bursts. Uh So sometimes did she not even wait? Did it just kind of come out and she did it? Right. You know? Like that's crazy. That's it's, the thing about Eileen is like, we you, don't know. There's just a lot of weird unanswered things about her because she was an extremely unstable person. Yeah. So, she's on, un, she's definitely unhinged. Like yeah. she is not like planning these things out like far in advance. Yeah. I don't think that any of them were premeditated. Mm-mm. No, I don't think so either. Cause she's still sex working in between. Right. Yeah. And mm-hmm. not killing people. So, mm-hmm. I'll, so yeah, it just doesn't seem very planned. Maybe it's when she was running out of money. Who knows? Yeah. yeah. I mean, maybe it was moments where she felt especially desperate Yeah, and wanted to take it out on somebody. Yeah. So, I mean, the police are like, I don't know what's going on. 
we can't find this. So when Tyra and Eileen had been seen kind of fleeing a car, Peter's mm-hmm. car, they took these sketches. But at first the police didn't release them because they were like, we don't want to scare her away, have her go to a new town. We don't right. really know who she is. We got to get more information. Mm-hmm. But then, like... In the next six months, three more men are killed, and they're like, we have to release these sketches mm-hmm. nationwide. Yeah. So they do. So fifth is Troy Burris. He's 50 years old sausage salesman whose body is found along the road, still Route 19 with two gunshots. Mm-hmm. Sixth was Charles Humphreys. He was 56 and a retired U.S. Air Force major, mm-hmm. former state child abuse investigator, and former Whoa. chief of police. This is a high caliber guy. Oh now, he was found one day after he was murdered. He is fully clothed and had been shot seven times in the head and torso. Hmm. And his car was found in a neighboring community. Interesting. That's a very weird one. Yeah. Finally, her, the last kill was Walter Antonio. He was 62 years old. Uh, he was a trucker. He was a security guide or security guard. He was found naked as well near a remote logging road and had been shot four times and he was found five days after his death. But let's go back to Peter's car. Like I said, they got in an accident and there were reports about these women now going out all over and these Mm -hmm. sketches. And now Tyra is like, listen, I'm leaving. Mm -hmm. I had nothing to do with these murders. Mm -hmm. My sketch is getting released across the country. I, I don't know that I 100% believe her mm-hmm. that she didn't know they were going on. Yeah. I think she might have known. I don't think she helped. Yeah. But I think that she was aware and she was definitely benefiting from the money and the theft. Yeah. But she leaves and goes to Pennsylvania to live with her family. She's like, I'm not going down with you over this. Mm-hmm. Sorry. So the police found Eileen's fingerprints on a receipt at a pawn shop and they were the prints in the car and they run it through the database. And of course she has a record. Mm-hmm. So she's arrested in 1991 at a bar called the last resort, <laughs> ironically. Um, and then a couple days later, the police found Tyra in Scranton, Pennsylvania, where her family was. Um, and Tyra agrees to help the police elicit a confession from Eileen so Eileen's sitting in prison, and they record all of Tyra and Eileen's phone conversations. Um, and they had several, several phone calls where Tyra's name is clearly, um, she's cleared from this. Eileen is like, yeah, you didn't help me at all. I know you didn't help me. I was trying to protect you and raise money for you. But after a period of of a month or so in prison, Eileen confesses to the murders. Mm. She's in a three-hour confession. It is a sporadic confession when you see video of it. She's crying. She's laughing. She's smoking. She's saying Tyra did nothing wrong. She has blatant disregard for her public defender when they're like, please don't say that. Yeah. <laughs> like, you have a right to not say that. Mm-hmm. Um, but she's like, I'll defend myself. And she gets charged for six counts of first-degree murder because they never found Peter's body, so they couldn't charge her with that murder, even though she confessed to it. And she starts to get called the damsel of death. So then there's this really super religious couple who sees her story in the newspaper and decide that they want to become involved with her life, but they can't 
visit her in prison because they're not immediate family. So they adopt her. What? I don't care for that at all. Me That is neither. so fucking weird. The woman's name is Arlene. Very close to Eileen. Yeah. That's and strange. she's like 44 years old and is like, my husband and I felt compelled by God to care for this woman. Like, you felt compelled to get famous off of selling her story, you psycho. Yep. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, no, That's crazy to me, like, to just be involved with this for no reason. Yeah, for, yeah, for no, no fucking reason. reason. You don't feel for the... Write her letters then in prison. You can write letters. Yeah. You don't have to legally adopt her. Yeah. So... In 1992, Eileen goes on trial for the murder of Charles. Typically, previous cases are inadmissible in court, but the Florida prosecution was allowed to use her previous convictions to show a pattern. And she was convicted for murder, for first-degree murder, even though people are like, she has serious mental health issues. Mm -hmm. Um, The jury is like, nope, this is first-degree murder. When they go to walk out of the courtroom, she's like, I was raped. I hope you get raped. Yelling at the jury. She's got, like, a hair-trigger mood swings in court because she'd be all, like, sweet on the stand and try to say nice things, but then her actions and her words coupled together are very odd. Yeah. But the most painful moment of the trial, which you can see, is when Tyra walks up to the stand to testify against Eileen. Eileen didn't know to that point that all those conversations had been recorded or that Tyra was going to say that she did it. So, But it's also, like, interesting because it's like, I know you didn't know that, but you also already confessed. Yeah. yeah. So This is, like, the whole double thing with Eileen that drives me crazy. She doesn't know. Like, she doesn't know what she thinks about herself, I think. Yeah. Like... It just seems like she's always going back and forth between like 10 different kinds of anger. Oh, yeah. You know? Mm-hmm. And like, because I think that because of her childhood and how she's been treated up until this point, that is the only recognizable emotion that she knows. Mm. So it's coming out in all these different ways, but it's all just different shades of anger. Yeah. You know? And it makes me really sad because I think. That's all she has. It's the only emotion she knows how to wield appropriately. Yeah. <laughs> it's really sad. So, I mean, the de- the defense tries to bring up that Mallory was previously convicted of rape, but it just doesn't work. Mm-hmm. Like, it's just not enough. After the first trial, she does change her tune a bit. She pleads, because she got life for the first one. She pleads no contest for the next three, saying that she wants to get it right. She says, I wanted to confess to you that Richard Mallory did violently rape me, as I've told you, but the others did not. Um, They only began to start to, she says. For these, she received three more death sentences. Then she pleads guilty for, not no contest, but guilty for the next two, which again, she gets two more death sentences. So she is in prison with six life sentences. Not life sentences, death sentences. And again, Peter's body was never found, so they couldn't uh, charge her entirely with that. So she's on death row 
which means you are in solitary like 23 hours a day with no visitors. She is starving for attention. Um, But when the cameras are off, she's saying things like, I'm going to change my story and say that I wasn't raped at all because I don't want to sit here for the next 20 years and die. You know, I don't want to be like, just let's get on with it. Mm -hmm. Like, just put me to death. Um, So she volunteered for execution. She gave away her right to automatic appeals because they have to continually appeal up even automatically if you don't request it. She said, stop using taxpayers' money. This is ridiculous. Like, just we know I killed these guys. Like, Mm -hmm. we know I'm eventually going to be put to death. Why are we keep going to court over this same exact thing? Um, Which I would say is her asking for death with dignity. Mm -hmm. She just is like, hey, I know I'm going to die. Let me die Mm -hmm. now. Um, at this point, her mom, quote, her fake mom, adopted mom, and her kind of stop seeing each other because Eileen accuses her of trying to use her for her money. But somebody who does keep visiting her is a woman named Dawn, who's known her since she was a teenager in Michigan. And she would come and she would never talk to Eileen about the murders. Mm. She'd bring pictures of her family and talk about her vacations. And like, she would just visit her. And that was it. That's so nice. It is really nice. (laughs) She scored 32 out of 40, where the cutoff is 30 for determining sociopathy. Um, Eileen was incarcerated in Florida Department of Corrections and then ends up at the Florida State Prison for execution. By 2001, it was her intention to really get this over with. So here's the statement that she sent. I killed those men, robbed them as cold as ice, and I'd do it again, too. There's no chance of keeping me alive or anything because I'd kill again. I have this crawling through my system. I'm so sick of hearing this she's crazy stuff. I've been evaluated so many times. I'm competent, sane, and I'm trying to tell the truth. I'm one who seriously hates human life, and I would kill again. I mean, there's no stronger statement that's just like, I don't need these courts of appeals. Mm -hmm. But then when she gets interviewed and stuff on like 60 Minutes, they're like, they say you're the most heinous female serial killer. And she's like, really? Because all I did is shoot them. Right. Think about like what Jack the Ripper did. She Mm -hmm. was like, she said on the show, I didn't like cut their penises off and put them in their mouths. (laughs) Like I I shot them and walked away, which I actually agree with. Like she, she wasn't brutalizing these dead bodies. She's like, just shot them. Mm -hmm. Just her attorney at this point is saying she's insane. She's insane. But all the psych evaluations are like, no. So she gets a new attorney whose main goal is to help her be put to death. Wow. In 2002, she starts complaining that prison workers are tainting her food with saliva and urine and that they're doing strip searches and they're handcuffing her super tight and her mattress is mildewy, which is like, okay, it's prison. We need to reform our prison system, but I bet that's happening to everybody. Yeah. Yeah, Mm -hmm. Like, this is not great. Um, In her final days, she gave a lot of interviews and she says, to society you sabotaged my ass society and the cops and the system a raped woman got executed and was used for books and movies and shit like yeah we did that (laughs) we totally did that thanks charlie's (laughs) theron what a good movie it's like she did really do a great job yeah okay on October 9th, 2002, she was executed by lethal injection. She declined her last meal and opted for a cup of coffee instead, which I love. But guess this. Your last meal 
can be anything under $20. It's under $20? Can you believe that? I read that today for the first time. Wait, has that been changed for inflation? I'm sure it has to, has to have been. I feel like I've seen some last meals that like are very decadent. But this is 2002. Huh. Interesting. That's also something that was put on Wikipedia, so I don't know if it's accurate. Yeah. <laughs> but I did read that so maybe today. Maybe it's in Florida. Oh, maybe that's that true. Because be, it's like death penalty is not a federal thing. That's right. So yeah, yeah, yeah. it might state be by a state. state by state. Interesting. Yeah, okay. but Florida's fucking cheaping out on there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Death row prisoners. <laughs> no flaming yacht in yeah. here. <laughs> um, weeks before her execution, she wrote a letter to God detailing all of her crimes from the time she was a child and you can read it. And I did. And it's like, she has beautiful handwriting. Um, but yeah, I mean, she had a lot to say about what she did wrong Mm -hmm. in her life, starting from her childhood. And then when she's about to be put to death, she went out with a bang by saying, yes, I would just like to say I'm sailing with the rock and I'll be back like independence day with Jesus. June 6th, like the movie big mothership and all I'll be back. That felt like a thousand movie references. That <laughs> Keep did them she guessing. even see? Keep them <laughs> guessing. Get us talking about something, oh girl. Oh my god, <laughs> that is a wild <laughs> last statement. I want to go out with a statement like that for sure. An unbelievably unrecognizable statement. That felt like every Christian mom's like, I'm getting off Facebook. Like last <laughs> post, you know. <laughs> you gotta say this. Yes, it like to me. I'm going to fly with the eagle, but I will be back because I love Facebook too much. Like, I don't need you skanky bitches. <laughs> she was the second woman in Florida and the 10th woman in the U.S. to receive capital punishment since the U.S. Supreme Court restored it. She was cremated and her ashes were spread under a tree in Michigan by her childhood friend Dawn. Much of Eileen's childhood sexual abuse and her career as a sex worker um, are said to just have irrevocably traumatized her. Yeah. Um, so her young life, you know, just left her in a huge part in a really bad cognitive state. Mm-hmm. She had that explosive temper. The system failed her. But, I mean, in short, she murdered seven men and felt little to no remorse for it until the very end. Mm -hmm. She is the first female serial killer that was followed by the FBI. Oh, interesting. Um, Because women, you know, women aren't serial killers, (laughs) as we talked about at the top of the show. Um, As a sex worker, killing people who abuse her, some people have said that she put that in the spotlight. which is good. Well, we needed to talk about that. More. I do agree with that. That like yeah. she kind of feels like the first woman to be like, yes, I'm a sex worker, but also we get raped all the time and that's not okay. Yeah. You know, you can pay me for sex, but you cannot rape me. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Because yes. I think that people have a hard time understanding that there is a difference. Right. You know, it would be like, I don't even know. Like... <laughs> Anybody asking okay. you to do your job yeah. for free and like abusively asking you to do it. Like, right. It would be like, you know, like butchers, you know, butcher animals for a living. Mm-hmm. But if you were to hold a butcher at gunpoint and be like, kill my dog, that they're different. It's like, no, but they're all, they're killing animals. So like, you know, it's the same thing. It's like, no, 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 not the same thing. I don't know if that's a good example of what it's I'm trying to say, ex- but like, saying. yeah, it's good. You know, it's like, 
on the surface, it looks like it's the same thing, but it's not right. It's not. And yeah, I think Eileen did put that in the spotlight, you know, for better or for worse. Yeah, she did. And, um, I really am. I'm sad that those men are dead. Like I'm sad for their families. Like that's a hard way to find out that a man in your life was treating sex workers really poorly. Mm -hmm. Um, but I'm also really sad that Eileen could never really figure out how her life worked best. Yeah. And that's Eileen's story. I mean, obviously things like the movie monster, there's been several books. She is very famously the most famous female serial killer. So very interesting. There we go on our first half of our spooky (laughs) Halloween story. (laughs) All right. Well, we need to get more drinks and then we'll be back with part two. It gets disgusting. We're back with more drinks and more murder. Yay. <laughs> this is such an odd night for us. It is. It's very dark, um, but it is. It, that was the whole point with the Halloween episode to right. get a little spooky, get a little dark, get a little upset. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so can you tell me what I'm drinking? It's so like velvet black. Yes. Um, so this is called Life After Beth. And it is an ounce and a half of vodka, an ounce of blueberry liqueur, um, about a half an ounce of lavender lemon simple syrup, a teaspoon of absinthe, uh, a little bit of lemon juice, and some aquafaba or um, egg whites. And you shake it all up, make it really nice and frothy and foamy, um, and garnish with some black cherries. Wow. Cheers. Cheers. That's so many ingredients. (laughs) Oh, it's delicious. It's interesting. Mm. The aquafaba is strong, but not bad strong. I think the citrus kind of cuts it. Well, that's why I made sure to put not even like a ton of lemon juice, just like a little bit. Yeah. And la- the lavender, you said, mm-hmm. isn't too strong, which is nice because yeah. you can definitely overdo floral Yeah. Flavors. And especially with like absinthe too. Mm-hmm. Like the absinthe I put in, I was like, I just want like the tiniest bit. Just a little you know? trouble. So I was actually hoping that with the green of the blueberry, I mean, green of the absinthe and the blue of the blueberry would turn it into like black kind of like it does mm-hmm. with food coloring but it turned out like a really nice like velvety purple yeah so that's okay it's a velvet color i mm-hmm. like it you could definitely make it blacker if you wanted to add food coloring you could mm-hmm. just make the photo black and white yeah i could <laughs> we never post a black and white cocktail no. <laughs> so what do you know about the black dahlia so i don't know if what i know is true or not true mm-hmm. i know she is one of the most famous unsolved murders mm-hmm. um i think her name is actually elizabeth mm-hmm. i believe that her body was like drained of blood or like there wasn't blood around her which is really weird mm-hmm. and i can't remember whether i saw that on a top 10 countdown and that wasn't her or that was her but i remember something about blood and i just the picture of her which i obviously think it's terrible to exploit pictures of dead people but Mm -hmm. i think the photo of her in death is so lovely 
what with the not the part with her body being all cut up oh okay yeah, like her face right well that's the, it's frustrating because again it's like a fictionalized version of what it looked like okay so that's face, a fictional photo her face was severely beaten okay I see. so like because you're talking about the glasgow smile yeah which we'll talk about yeah and you know it's when they do it in like tv shows and stuff it's like this very like clean cut and she looks oh. very peaceful it was not like not that. like okay. that. Yeah. So now I know that. And I think that's part of the problem mm-hmm. with like what I know about her is that she's such almost like a cult classic for mm-hmm. serial killer people that it's like it's hard to say if what I know has just been woven into pop culture. Yeah. Or not. Well, and that's the whole problem I had with researching this. It's mm-hmm. like literally every single thing was saying generally the same thing, but had little things here and there that were unsubstantiated, you know, that were uh, purported by the media at the time, which was notoriously shady. (laughs) So we're going to get into it. But, you know, just a heads up for anyone else who's like a big true crime fan, who's heard this story a dozen times, like, I'm going to try and tell it as truthfully as I can while kind of pointing out like what things we know, what things we don't know, all that kind of stuff. So if you're like, actually, she, you know, like, I know there are a thousand versions of this story. So this one is mine. Um, (laughs) (laughs) And I would like to uh, cite Hollywood land unsolved. She did a great two part episode on this buzz. Buzzfeed unsolved Wikipedia 48 hours. There are a lot of sources on the black Dahlia. So I'm going to start my story the way that everyone starts this story with the morning of January 15th, 1947 and a woman named Betty Bersinger. Betty was walking along the road with her three-year-old daughter when she spotted something strange on the side of the road. That particular area was a vacant lot known for people discarding their trash, so at first she didn't really pay it much mind. She did think that it was kind of strange for someone to disregard a store mannequin. You know, she was like, that's like a weird object. But something wasn't quite right about it, so she looked over again, this time a little closer. And upon her second viewing, she could now see clearly that it wasn't a mannequin at all. It was the mutilated body of a young woman. The police were called immediately, and soon people and reporters flocked to the scene. What they saw would have turned even the strongest stomach. So this is when I'm going to get into this description of the body. So if you don't want to listen to this, definitely skip ahead. She was cut in half with surgical precision, completely drained of blood, and thoroughly cleaned, giving her a shocking white appearance. The body was placed just a few feet away from the sidewalk and posed in a way that would cause the most shock to whoever found her. Her arms were kind of placed up over her head, and her legs were spread open. She had deep wounds on her thighs, and one of her breasts was nearly completely removed. She had ligature marks on her ankles, wrists, and neck that indicate that she had been bound and tortured. But the most notable mutilation, of course, was the way that her face was slashed from the corners of her mouth up to her cheekbones, commonly known as the Glasgow Smile. This gruesome smile and her nickname, the Black Dahlia, would soon completely overshadow the 22-year-old woman who was Elizabeth Short. So why is it called the Glasgow Smile? Do we know? I don't know. (laughs) I know, like, because that's the scar that the Joker is supposed to have in Mm -hmm. Batman. I wonder if it's, like, a... To me, it almost sounds like something like a 
a Nazi torture person yeah. would have done to people, and his last name was, you know what Possibly. I mean? Something like or that. Or like I don't maybe know. a famous serial killer in Glasgow did that mm-hmm. to people. Right. Like, I don't know. Um, but yeah, but that's what it's referred to. But I think most people associate it with her, right. honestly, now. Mm-hmm. Um, and now the Joker, I guess. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so it's funny that like they say like the body was meticulously cleaned. There was no blood at the scene of the crime, like none at all. So like she was obviously drained and killed somewhere else. Body was dumped there. Which they say, take, I remember watching that mm-hmm. and that being shocked. That takes such, you, it takes know how. You have to know how to do that. Right. And it's interesting because yeah, like the cuts and everything are very clean. But then like when you're looking at the photos of the crime scene you realize how many gashes and stuff are like all over her body like but you can't see them because there's not as much blood yeah so like in the black and white photo you just kind of see these like really awful like black marks uh-huh. you know on her and it's just we want to think of it as like you were saying like this very clean mannequin sort of thing mm-hmm. but then when you see the photos you're like oh that's fucked up yeah you know and she um was there was blunt force trauma to the head. So we know she was hit in the head and we know that she was bound, um, and tortured. So, so she definitely, some of this was before death. Yes. And she knew this was happening probably. Yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's horrifying. Yeah. Um, Elizabeth was born on July 29th, 1924 in the Hyde Park section of Boston, Massachusetts. She was the third of five daughters born to Cleo short and his wife, Phoebe may, um, which I thought was interesting. I've never heard of a man named Cleo. I thought that was interesting. But That's funny. The grandfather in my story's name was Lori. Yeah. Well, and the dad's name was Leo in yeah. yours, which yes. I thought was interesting. So hmm. anyways, um, so everyone in her life, uh, called her Beth. So that's kind of why, like when I talk about her in like the major crime sense, like I mostly refer to her as Elizabeth, mm-hmm. but when I'm talking about her personally, I, like to refer to her as Beth because that's who she was as a human being. Right. Of course. Um, so for a while, things were going good for Beth and her family. Her father made a good living. He had this really cool job building miniature golf courses in the Boston area. What? And he could comfortably provide for his family of seven. I mean, you have five daughters. That's so many kids. But when the great depression hit, everything changed. He lost his business. He lost most of his savings. He just couldn't bounce back. Soon, he simply disappeared. And when his car was found abandoned by a bridge, it was understood that he had jumped off the bridge and committed suicide. So poor Phoebe is left alone with five children to look after. She sold their house, moved into a tiny apartment, and took a bookkeeping job to get by. And to make things worse, Beth was not a well child. She was always having respiratory issues like asthma and bronchitis and even had to have lung surgery at the age of 15. She was often sent to Florida to get away from the harsh Boston weather because she couldn't handle it. And soon she simply dropped out of high school because she wasn't there anyways. And she was like, what is the point? So Beth is feeling a bit lost, and then uh, something major happens in 1942. The family receives a letter from sunny California. It's Beth's long-lost daddy saying, surprise, I didn't kill myself. I'm alive and living that West Coast life, but I would love to come home and be with my family again because I miss you. 
The rest of the family was shocked and pissed. Uh, Phoebe wrote back, absolutely not. We're fine without you. Fuck you. But all Elizabeth heard in this letter is, New life in California. (laughs) And as soon as she turned 18, she packed her bags for Viejo, California to live with her dad. But in a twist that shocked absolutely no one, (laughs) Beth and her father did not do well living together. They fought constantly. He wanted her to do more cooking and cleaning and staying at home. And she was out of the house more than she was in it. She even got arrested at one point for underage drinking. So in 1943, she moves out of the house. This is when she really starts her nomadic lifestyle. She literally, like, some people like to track every single place that Beth lived, and I'm not going to do that because it's too fucking many. Um, But what you need to know, she had many odd jobs around town. She lives in a lot of places. People said of Beth that she was pretty much always broke and often lived in hotels off of other people's dime. (laughs) But that can only last for so long. And soon she decided to move back to Florida because she was familiar with the area. So she goes back there and she meets an air force officer named major Michael Matthew Gordon jr. Lots of M's. Whoa. Say it again. Major Michael Matthew Gordon jr. (laughs) Major Michael picked up Pekka pickle. (laughs) Jingle Heimer Gordon jr. (laughs) The two had a brief but passionate romance before he headed off to war. He proposed to her in a letter. She said, yes, But then she never saw him again because he died in a plane crash in 1945, one week before the end of the war. That's devastating. Horrible. I don't want to go on with this story. (laughs) This doesn't get better. Now, some people say that he didn't actually propose and Beth made that up. But like, can we just let her have this one fucking thing? My God. Come on, it's a sleepless in Seattle situation. (laughs) Just let her have it. Um, Let's just let her have an engagement. She dies very shortly into this. So So anyways, um, so in 1946, Elizabeth decides to reinvent herself yet again in California, but this time in L.A. She's back in her old routine, working odd jobs, even at the famous Hollywood canteen. But she, again, mostly survived by borrowing money and crashing with friends, all while dreaming of making it in Hollywood and becoming a movie star. So at this point in the story, we are six months away from her murder. And unfortunately for Elizabeth, there are a lot of rumors around this time period that she was never allowed to refute because obviously she was fucking murdered. People said that she was a party girl who took different men home every night. Some say she was a sex worker. Some say she was a lesbian. One guy claimed she had, I hate saying this, the vagina of a child. So she couldn't even have sex. So like, what was she doing? Like, I don't understand where that came from. Um, But as far as we can tell, There was really no proof of any of this. And I'm not saying Elizabeth didn't have a good time and that she didn't flirt with men and have boyfriends. But I think that the media painted her in this way to give an excuse for why this happened to her. You know, because it's almost like, well, no, like this doesn't happen to good girls. So she must have been a bad girl. It's a way for, I think, most adults specifically parents to feel like their daughter is safe Mm -hmm. and it's a way for women to feel safe Mm -hmm. like i don't act like that so that won't happen to me and i think we see that over and over again in history it's like it's i mean it's why we do 
victim blaming the way that we do it it's very easy to be like well or like even horror movies like the girl who has sex is the first one to die in the movie because she's a slut like it's very easy to slut shame women just but you can be as slutty as you want and not die right who cares well and also like we can't escape the fact that there's also a way to sell the story more oh yeah you know if like she's like this like young wild thing infamous like, party girl yeah it makes the story also like you know more sexy and crazy and like you know piques people's interest you know and let's also be clear even if she was a sex worker even if this all was true she didn't deserve this no one deserves to be murdered no matter how they make a living right that's just the fact of the matter mm-hmm. um but Anyways, uh, from what we can gather from her friends and acquaintances, she was just kind of a big flirt who mainly went on dates so she could eat dinner because she didn't have any fucking money ever, you know, and some men don't take, you know, women flirting with them and going on a date and like and not saying no it and saying no very well. So, you know, it just. But when I heard that she mainly went on dates to, like, get dinner, that made me really sad. Yeah. Um, The last time anyone saw her alive was on January 9th, 1947. She had returned to Los Angeles after a brief trip to San Diego with Robert Red Manley. He was a 25-year-old married salesman that she had been dating who decided that he was going to stay with his wife after all. Red stated that he dropped her off at the Biltmore Hotel because she had plans to meet her sister who was coming into town from Boston. Some say it was a phone call. You know, I'm not really, the story gets kind of muddy. Uh, And the last time he saw her was around 6.30 p.m. But her sister never had plans to come and visit and was currently 100 miles away. And I don't think if it was a phone call, had any plans to call. Um, So we're not sure what was going on there. Um, and a bellhop said he saw Elizabeth leave the hotel late in the evening and walk out onto Olive Street alone. And that is the last supposed sighting of Elizabeth Short. So she's going out at night. Okay. Yeah. She's on a date with a guy who's deciding not to stay with her. Mm-hmm. Does Is he turning her down just then? Or is it his later story that he decided not to stay with her? Did he like break up with her that night? I don't know. It's kind of muddy, you know, because okay. we only have his side of the story. Right. So it's like if you he know? was breaking up with her just then, she could have been like, I need to go home yeah. and made up some story about her sister to mm-hmm. pretend that she's fine with him leaving. Yeah. Because we also know that like he was like, well, I'll stick around in the lobby with you and kind of wait with you. And then eventually she was like, no, like, you know, just leave. So then maybe know? that's his later story just to keep yeah. his wife. Exactly. Like we were breaking up. Yeah. I don't know. So... That's the last sighting of her at the Biltmore Hotel. Her body was found six days later, and the autopsy revealed that she had been dead for about 10 hours. So who was she really meeting at the hotel, if she was meeting anyone? What happened during those six days, and who killed her? The first big clue that the the police had was the body itself. It was cut so precisely that the cops believed right away that it was someone with medical knowledge, probably a surgeon, which narrows down their search search pool at least a little bit. Apparently, (laughs) it just literally went to, like, the medical school nearby and, like, interviewed every single student. Isn't she in L.A.? (laughs) 
Yeah. I mean, they have some of the biggest hospitals in the country. Yeah. Like, that's a really hard ask. Yes. To be like somebody with surgical know how. <laughs> There's so many people in LA who can perform surgery. Exactly. I mean, all, think of all the plastic surgeons that exist yeah. in LA. It's like, this is the 40s, but still. Uh, and then, as much as far as like hard evidence goes, they really didn't have much. Uh, they got their next clue a few days later. Um, the L.A. Examiner's editor received a phone call, and it was a man claiming to be the killer. And he was saying how he was upset about how the case was going. And he said, I'm going to turn myself in, but I want to wait a little bit longer. I want to give them like a little more time to catch me. Obviously, this could have been fucking anyone. But, you know, he said, to prove that I'm the killer, I'll send you some of her belongings. Sure enough, the next day, the L.A. Examiner received a package containing Elizabeth's birth certificate, business cards. I don't know what business cards she had. She was a busy, busy business a girl. busy businesswoman. Um, photographs and an address book with the name Mark Hansen written on the cover. Mark Hansen was a nightclub owner whose girlfriend was really good friends with Elizabeth. So Elizabeth would stay at their house frequently, you know, to hang out with her friend, and she always needed a place to crash. He said, well, yeah, that is mine, but I gave the address book to her as a gift because I didn't need it. You know, it was, you know she doesn't have anything. It just seemed like a nice thing to do. Um, and then she also placed a phone call to him the day before she disappeared. So people are like, okay, who is this guy? But then another clue popped up. Elizabeth's purse and one of her shoes were found on a trash can a few miles from where her body was found. But the killer had wiped everything down with gasoline, so no prints were recovered. Like, nothing really useful came of this. But there was, like, a note in the shoe from the killer that was like, you'll never find me. Okay, so... First thing I learned, gasoline's mm-hmm. the key. Yeah, Didn't apparently. know that. Didn't know that. Second, it's like, if her body's that clean, there's no way you're going to find... I mean, good on you for trying. You never know. Somebody could fuck up. But it's like, sounds to me like kind of a Dexter thing. Like, mm-hmm. you know how to clean a body and clean up after yourself because you understand how blood works or how toxicology yeah. works. Mm-hmm. So the letters keep coming. Uh, mainly to the newspapers that are covering the case, like saying things like, I will give up Dahlia killing if I get 10 years. Don't try to find me. And they were all about like, I'm going to confess. That was what all of them said. Like, I'm going to confess. I'm going to confess, but don't try to arrest me. You know, it was like really fucking annoying, you know, frankly. Um, and some of the letters were even done in like the classic true crime way of like cutting out the letters from newspapers and magazines to form the sentences. I love that. I'm not even kidding. I love that. I mean, I hate that this happened to her. Yeah. But I, do love that. <laughs> I just didn't know that that actually happened. So it is kind of fun. Uh, so along with these letters, the, that weren't getting them anywhere. The police were also getting thousands of anonymous tips and clues that were largely, completely useless and some were total hoaxes because there was also like a like a thousand dollar prize or whatever to whoever like could provide information to lead to the arrest of the murderer you know so a lot of people are like well maybe this will work and maybe i can get the fucking money you know um they also got this is very strange about a dozen like false confessions over the years 
which again kept muddying the waters because someone would confess and they'd spend all these time this time and resources investigating like did he really do it and it's like no he was in Oklahoma at the time like yeah. of course he didn't do it like, I feel like that why happened is with he... the Zodiac killer too right oh, like yeah. a lot of you wanted to over, that. yeah mm. so now I'm gonna get into just a tiny bit of Katie's speculation corner okay I don't a hundred percent trust these letters and tips because number one, why is it only the newspapers getting them? And number two, the newspapers in LA at the time were at the height of yellow journalism fever. Reporters were ruthless doing anything to get a story. And sometimes they just made shit up. Mm. And one reporter even called Phoebe Short, Elizabeth's mom, and told her, that her daughter had won a beauty pageant in Los Angeles and he was doing a story on her because he thought she was going to be a future star. So he said, can I get some information about Elizabeth's personal life from you so I can fill out her bio, you know, and make sure I get this article right, you know, so she can, it can help further her career. So Elizabeth's mom was like, yeah, of course. So she's telling him all this information. So Elizabeth's about Elizabeth's mom childhood. didn't know she was dead? This was like literally right after it happened. Like this was within like, a couple days, if not like hours. That's terrible. And then at the end of the call, he goes, well, actually I do have to tell you your daughter was murdered. Goodbye. That's how she found out that her daughter was brutally murdered. I don't like that. I don't like that at all. Um, but yeah, it's, and it's also like, they also were like one step ahead of the police all the time. And, there was also this weird story that I don't know if it's true, but one of the reporters went and he like broke into the city morgue and fingerprinted the body himself. But of course, again, there's so much misinformation in this case that I can't even say if that's true. But I can say that I wouldn't be surprised because the papers and the reporters were doing anything to keep this in the news, to keep selling papers, and to make it as salacious as possible. So... Even the nickname, the Black Dahlia, has a story wrapped in mystery. Um, so it's often said that the name was given to her by reporters because they saw her body and the way her black hair was and her white skin. You know, they could only think of the film The Blue Dahlia starring Vivian Lee, but, like, it's black, you know, so it's the Black Dahlia. Um, but... It was mainly, uh, but a lot of people were like, no, she had that nickname like way before. Yes, because of the movie, The Blue Dahlia, starring Vivian, sorry, not Vivian Lee, Veronica Lake. Mm -hmm. um, but they were like, no, her friends gave it to her. And then some people were like, no, it was the people at the drugstore that she went to. So like, nobody fucking knows. <laughs> nobody knows anything. Nobody knows anything. Um, but mainly people said no, because she had dark hair and she wore like these like really cute, like, kind of slinky black dresses so that's why we call her the black dahlia oh my gosh i missed yeah. my calling <laughs> but with all that let's talk about the suspects okay so just a few months into the investigation the police had 75 suspects now first we have red manly um the guy who was with her he's like the last person to see her alive and the reason people think he did it was obviously because of that fact alone. Um, and also he was cheating on his wife with her. So apparently, you know, but then he had plans to reconcile with her. So it was kind of like get the mistress out of the way, you know, stakes are high here. The stakes are high. And then you add to the fact that he was discharged from the army for being mentally unstable. Mm. But he has a super solid alibi for the time of the murder. 
and he didn't have any medical knowledge. So I don't think it's very likely that he would have done it so precisely. So that knocks him kind of off the list. Then we have journal guy, address book guy, Mark Hansen. He obviously knew her. It was his address book that was among her possessions. Right, but he's nightclub And owner. she had placed a phone call to him just the day before her disappearance. Some people also claim that he had tried unsuccessfully to seduce Elizabeth when she stayed at his house. So perhaps another angry man in a position of power. Then we have Leslie Dillon. Leslie Dillon was the bellhop at the hotel who had claimed to see her leave. He also consistently inserted himself into the investigation and started a long letter-writing campaign to a psychologist at the L.A. Times. He would ask lots and lots of questions about the case, but also offer up his own information. And, like, there were, like, weird things about the case, like, that he knew that, like, nobody really knew knows how he knew. And then he was like, well, a friend of mine named Jeff Connors did it. And so they investigated. At first, they thought that Jeff just, like, wasn't real. Uh, but he was real, and he was quickly ruled out. The guy was like, why in the world would he say that I did this? <laughs> so wait, does this bellhop have any medical know-how? He used to work as a mortician's assistant. Oh. Oh. And I'm going to say, not, I only saw one thing out of all the things that mentioned him, and I think that's pretty fucking damning. That he's literally the last person to see her alive, and he was a mortician's assistant. I mean, don't they, they drain people they of fluids? They drain people's blood. And then they pump them back up with other stuff. Yeah. Okay. That is shocking to me. Yeah. And he was the last actual person yeah. to report seeing her alive. Yeah. Okay. Then, and also, he's writing letters to the L.A. Psychi- Times psychiatrist. Like, what is he doing? What does he, wa- what does he want out of this? What does he want? He's obsessed. Then there's Patrick O'Reilly. He was a doctor who knew Elizabeth uh, through the nightclub that Mark Hansen ran. Because Elizabeth was always at the nightclub. Mark Hansen runs it. Patrick O'Reilly's always there. He and Hansen were said to have frequented sex parties together in the L.A. area. And we also know for a fact that he had a penchant for violence. He once took his secretary back to a hotel room and violently beat her half to death in a sexual manner. Like, it, it, it was like a, from what she said, because she did survive this, but like, it was a sexual thing, just him hitting her yeah which is awful um and so he does this but he often didn't get punished too harshly because uh he was married to one of the lapd captain's daughters so he had an in with the lapd and so and he's into (laughs) medicine so there's another like very likely candidate like tip of the hat to you sir Mm -hmm. like i think you're gonna do this and, of course, some celebrities made the list, uh, like Arlo Guthrie, Bugsy Siegel, <laughs> and our old friend Orson Welles. But I highly doubt it was any of them because I don't think they know how to dissect a body. And if they do, what's going on? Uh, then there is a theory that maybe she had a fatal run-in with a serial killer. The Cleveland torso murderer was running rampant at the time, and his crimes were very similar to this one. But, of course, he was mainly in Ohio. <laughs> Then there was another person who was killing young, dark-haired women in uh, the L.A. area at the time who was never caught. 
He even killed a woman named Georgette Bauerdorf, who worked with Elizabeth at the Hollywood Canteen, and they kind of looked similar. But she was killed in, like, a hotel bathtub. So there's, like, a whole podcast that goes into all of those extra murders. Like, we're not going to do it here, but... Yeah, I just kind of wonder, like, did anybody else... Was anybody else murdered in this exact way? With, like, the Glasgow smile and not the draining of the, the blood? exact way. Okay, so everything is kind of, like, an Similar, offshoot. but not the exact this way. This seems too specific. It's too specific. The most prominent suspect, however, is a man whose own son has made it his life's mission to prove that his father committed the crime. George Hodel was a physician who was often described as a bit eccentric. Even the house he lived in was some kind of weird nightmare. It is a Lloyd Wright design, not Frank Lloyd Wright. (laughs) Lloyd Wright, his son. Um, It is called the Franklin House. And it is styled after a Mayan temple. And I am oh, going, like the step. I am going to show you photos of this house because it is horrifying. <laughs> Look at those. That's oh. a house in LA. Like, so when you look at the front, it almost looks like there's two Mayan temples, like, on top and at the bottom of the window in the middle. And it looks like almost like a gaping, like, beak. monster. Yeah, like a beak. Mm-hmm. So this home has big pyramids built into design, um, an iconic central courtyard with a swimming pool, and it has a secret room hidden by sliding bookshelves. That's not okay. Uh, I feel like, what, why do you need that unless you're James Bond? Yeah, it's a very James Bond villain house, isn't it? Yeah. It's so weird, and especially when it's, like, lit up at night, like... And like, what are you, what, where are you keeping somebody for six days that nobody you know is going to know about it? Well, if you're that high profile of a person, exactly. That's what I'm saying. It's like, it is kind of insane to think that somebody with such surgical know-how and the body is so clean and this is so precisely done would not have also have a family. And also, like, be faking it in society. And then you would need a place to hide this body for six days. A screaming, chained-up person. Oh, yeah. Well, and George's son remembers, you know, that children were especially banned from this secret room. And he maintained that that was where his father, like, killed and maimed and cleaned the body. George Hodel had a very high IQ and was even a child musical prodigy. He graduated from all the schools very early. He was a newspaper reporter, interesting, at the age of 16, Mm. and then went to medical school where he studied surgery. He became a doctor, um, and he liked to work at the venereal disease clinics of L.A., and apparently he was... Kind of accused of misdiagnosing people, uh, especially like celebrities. Like he loved treating and doing weird stuff with celebrities. Um, And he eventually had 11 children by five different women. George Hodel first came to the attention of police when he was arrested in 1949 for sexually abusing and impregnating his daughter. So the police are already looking for a doctor, strike one. And they're looking for a sexual deviant strike, too. So George Hodel is now suddenly very high on the suspect list, someone that was not on their radar for the past couple years. But he was so high that the police bugged his house 
for 40 days. Can you imagine 40 days of constant recordings to sift through? No, that would be terrible. Awful. Just to try and get some hard evidence on him, which makes me think that there was some other reason other than like, he's an awful person who like abused his daughter. And like, that's why you think he killed Elizabeth short. Like that makes me think that there's something else, some other piece of evidence that we don't know connecting the two. Why would they do that? Unless they, because we just went through all these people who are very likely the killer. And like this guy, suddenly he's on your radar so much that you're going to bug his house. And why so many years like after, and also is he just going to talk about it at like Sunday tea? Right. Yeah. Like (laughs) again, years after it happened, a bugging is not the way to get somebody at this point. Nobody's just going to bring up like, Oh, by the way, by the way, remember that time I drained blood out of the most famous (laughs) victim ever. Uh, they, he did say something about the black Dahlia though. Uh Oh, on the, on the recording, on the recording. Uh Oh, one night he said, was he drunk? Supposing I did kill the black Dahlia. They can't prove it now. They can't talk to my secretary secretary anymore because she's dead. Okay. I have a question. <laughs> who, who says that? Suppose who says that? I did it. Suppose I did, did it. Somebody posed the question. I have no idea. Okay. This is at a cocktail. I'm picturing a cocktail party. Small one. Mm -hmm. People are sitting around. It's late. And he just keeps rambling Mm because he's like drinking. And then it's like, suppose I did do it. And everybody's like, did what? (laughs) So wait, did he kill his secretary? So her death was ruled a suicide by drug overdose. But some people believe that he had something to do with it because he was with her when she died. And he burned some of her personal documents afterward. Even so, if she knew and was keeping it a secret, she could have taken her own life just out of guilt. Yeah. Yeah. So there was also another recording where you could supposedly hear a woman screaming, but we'll never hear for ourselves because the tapes were lost. Oh. All we have are the transcripts. No. And suddenly the lead investigator declares that George Hodel is not a suspect anymore. Nothing was found on the recordings and he takes him off the list and immediately is like, absolutely not. He's not our guy. Many people think that maybe there was some bribing going on because the LAPD was extremely corrupt at the time. And another thing they heard on the recordings were George Hodel being like, yeah, can I just bribe someone? Like, it was like something like that. I didn't write down the actual quote, but can it was something about like for this? bribing the police department. <laughs> and once he was off the hook, it was off to the Philippines for George Hodel. <laughs> oh, forever? So he did come back to the States about 40 something years later and died peacefully at the age of 91. But okay, all those George. years later, one person couldn't let it all go. And that was his son, Steve. Steve was an LAPD homicide investigator, and he was a trained private detective who has been on a mission for years to prove that his father killed Elizabeth Short. So he didn't suspect his father of it when his father was alive, but after his father died, he was given, you know, this little uh, thing of photo albums, and he's looking through. And he's looking at these photos and he goes, why do I recognize that woman? And then he's like, oh my gosh, that's the Black Dahlia. He goes, that's Elizabeth Short in these photos. He's like convinced of it. So he has these photos from his co- this personal collection of his father's of the woman. Then he is looking at the letters that the 
supposed killer wrote the police in the LA Times. And he's like, that handwriting, that's my dad's. And then he starts digging and he is like, okay, here's some more witness testimony. People claim that, yeah, my dad and Elizabeth definitely knew each other. And then he finds a story about a man coming forward and saying that he was at a vacant lot where at the vacant lot where Elizabeth's body was found and dumped. And he saw a dark car and a thin man pulling something out of the trunk and leaving it there. Both things match George Hodel's description. So there's a lot of circumstantial stuff that he's finding. And it's interesting because he has started thinking, like, maybe my dad did this. And then he found out that he his dad was a suspect back in the 40s. And he's like, what? <laughs> this is very shocking for Steve. I'm sure. <laughs> I'm like, oh, my dad's been living in the Philippines. Yeah. Like, <laughs> Why? That's where he retired. How fun. But... Some people do ask, they're like, but Steve, like, why would your dad do this? Like, that seems kind of out of left field. So you does know? his house. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but Steve had an answer for that, too. His father was friends with the famous surreal artist Man Ray. And he said his father was kind of obsessed with this guy. He was at their house all the time. He, the same daughter that, like, the dad, uh, sexually abused and you know all this awful stuff man ray like took nude photos of her when she was like 14 like mm. they have this very weird relationship george and man ray okay and so george is like well i'm gonna become an artist too and he keeps kind of thinking like you know like well i could be an artist like i could do what he's doing and so steve's idea is like maybe he wanted to take man ray's surrealist art and bring it into reality so one of his most famous works of art is called the Minotaur and it's this photograph of, of it's a black and white photo and it's a very like white, just the torso mm. with the arms overhead so that the, it kind of looks like the uh, horns of a Minotaur. Okay. And it's very similar to how her body was posed, posed. Okay. when they found it. So... And he said, and then people were like, yeah, but like the biggest thing about her is the lips. And he goes, well, one of Man Ray's most famous paintings is called The Lovers, and it's just a big pair of lips. That's all it is. So, you know, it's interesting. You, you know, it's one of those things, though, are we making the pieces fit that we, like, that we want to fit? Yeah, are we trying to make it fit? Or does it actually fit? Yeah. I have that feeling every time I'm doing a puzzle. Yeah. (laughs) Am I I forcing these pieces together or Or is this? Do they actually go? Right. Steve Hodel or Hodel, whatever it is, um, has written many books connecting his father to the case. I think the total number is like four. He also has a podcast about it. He also, there was like a mini series made on like the long lost granddaughter of George Hodel, like getting involved in the case. Like there is a lot going on and there was some money to be made off of a lot of this, you know? And so that's a thing we have to remember because I'm not saying that he's not right, you know, but when there's money, there's issues. We know this. Um, but the fact of the matter is we'll never know for sure because some of his findings are valid and others, like the handwriting similarity and the photographs that he claims are of Elizabeth, those have been officially debunked by experts. And mm-hmm. like the photographs, 
when he brought those out, I was like, that is not her. (laughs) (laughs) I can see that from a mile away. Like, that's just not her, you know? Like, you can just clearly tell it. Um, And the thing that sucks is we'll never be able to test any future suspects or any more evidence, you know, against George Hodel, Hodel because all of the evidence that we did have in the case mysteriously disappeared from the LAPD offices. They have no idea what happened to it. No tapes. No tapes. No handbag. No shoe. No whatever. Like, we didn't even have much evidence to begin with. And now we have absolutely none. My, Can we right. lock that shit down? <laughs> Wait, I feel please, like this happens. Be more careful. This happens all the time with famous murders. Like, obviously, somebody wants to do something. Yeah. There's a giant bug on your drapes. Is that a spider? I no, it's a tell. stink bug. Oh, okay, good. All right, never mind. Dear God, that was scary. So, I mean, My heart stopped in my chest. <laughs> I thought it was going to be a spider. <laughs> I've been finding spiders in my car. That's the, the I, I would, hate it. I would crash on the I highway. hate it. Are you parking under a tree? Yes. Don't well, do I that. Why stop now? Yeah, don't do that. <laughs> don't do that. Stop parking under it now. Oh my God. One day, producer got in his car like last October, got in, sat down, huge web with <gasps> a orb spider on it in front of his face. And now I get in my car and I'm like, oh my yeah, God. Yeah, but if he parks under that big ass tree yep, over there. That's the problem. I was like, they got right up in your car. Happy Halloween. <laughs> so. <laughs> My, do you want to know my personal theory? Yeah. I'm a, okay. No, don't let's nope, stop it here. No, no, no. <laughs> this Absolutely is it. not. <laughs> my personal theory is, so I do think that that mortician's assistant guy is a very likely person, but I also really think that it was Hanson and O'Reilly together because they were friends. We know that. They both liked to frequent sex parties. They were both powerful men in LA who had mm-hmm. a lot of connections. Mm-hmm. O'Reilly was a doctor. So he probably knew, you know, the know-how to dissect the body. Mm-hmm. And he was known to be violent, especially in a sexual nature. And one of them has connections with the police, uh-huh. yeah? Okay. O'Reilly. And I also think that it makes more sense that it's two people because one of the things that I think gets glossed over is that she was being tortured for six days. I had no idea that that was the case. I didn't realize that either. And are like... Were all the injuries, like, slowly occurring? Do we know, like, when... We don't really know. We don't know when they happened or... Yeah. yeah. But especially if they're holding her captive for six days, like, they would have to, like, kind of switch shifts to, like, make sure that nobody found her, you know? So it would make more sense in my mind for there to be two people, um, you know, to keep an eye on her. And I also think that maybe it was O'Reilly who sent in the black book with Hanson's name on it to remind Hanson, shut the fuck up because I could expose you at any moment. So that's my personal theory that it was the two of them together that did this. But we'll never know for sure because someone thought that Beth didn't matter enough to throw her files away in the LAPD office. They thought Beth didn't matter enough to get her story right. They didn't think Beth mattered enough to tell her mother that she had passed away without some kind of ruse. And they didn't think Beth mattered enough to torture her and kill her in the way that she did, in the way that they did. And I just wish 
that someone gave a shit about Beth a little bit more to treat her like this. And we only remember her as the Black Dahlia. And I'd like to remember Beth the person. Yeah. And that's it. That's the story. <laughs> I mean, that's, I mean, that's more than I've ever known about her. So that's yeah. amazing. And like, it was frustrating. Cause like I literally went through so many sources and mm-hmm. podcasts and like, it was weird, like how many different stories there were. And it just still felt like, Oh, we don't know. Yeah. You know, it's kind of frustrating. It is. So, all right. Are we ready to do the horoscopes? Yes. All right. What's yours? So we're February 29th. Mm -hmm. So Eileen is a Pisces. Mm. It says that if you're born on February 29th in this year, that you're highly intelligent, sometimes sociological and imaginative. You have psychological talent and may enjoy your own solitude. Let's call this a loner quality. Since you find it hard to take anything at face value, your path will lead you to study, test, and analyze a great many things. Hmm. Sometimes it will be beneficial to you to have more faith. Without faith, you tend to become clinical. You are born, you're a born searcher and seeker of truth, attracted to all things spiritual and mythical, loving natural beauty, ocean, grass, green plants and flowers, always leaving an air of mystery of yourself to others. Wow. That fits really well. Like a loner. It's weird that you said like ocean grass too, because she like was led to Florida. Yeah. And I think, I think some of it is like a lot of times horoscopes try to highlight positive qualities. And I think if you looked at the negative aspects of all of those qualities, Mm -hmm. like being a loner, she was in solitary confinement for over a decade and like things like that. Well, and like, you know, it said like, you know, you're a searcher, you know, and I feel like she was constantly searching and like, it said like searching for like the truth or Mm -hmm. something. And I feel like Eileen never saw the good in people. She only saw the bad. And so, you know, it's just that, I don't know. I think that fits really well with her. It's Mm. a weird, I mean, it's a, I can't believe it, but yeah, (laughs) these horoscopes. Oh my gosh. I know. Um, all right. So she was born on, let's see, July 29th, 1924. So she's a Leo. Uh, it says Leo, Leo and Cleo. Mm, I know. (laughs) It says your life pursuit is to lead the way and a secret desire to be a star. People of this zodiac sign like theater, taking holidays, being admired, expensive things, bright colors, and dislike being ignored, facing difficult reality, and not being treated like a king or queen. Which I thought was interesting. <laughs> well, led to, I mean, she walked her way on over to California. That's yep. where the stars go. Mm-hmm. And also she, yeah, she is famous now. Mm-hmm. Not in the way that she ever intended or wanted to be, but yeah, she's known the world over. Hmm. All right. So let's talk about these two ladies in conversation with each other in a little segment we like to call just the two of us pretty crazy pretty wild i I mean there's some vocab words that we haven't used in all of our shows like nomadic that we both use it's very weird very interesting yeah i wrote that down um but it's funny because 
when you're talking about someone like Elizabeth, like it's almost romantic. It's like, no, she's a nomad. She's out in California. She wants to be a star. She's hopping from place to place, relying on the kindness of strangers, you know, (laughs) and it's painted in this more kind of romantic light. And for Eileen, it's like, you're a bum. You know, you're a burden on society. Yeah, exactly. Stay away from us. I, I absolutely agree. I think that their stories are such mirror opposites, even mm-hmm. down to their deaths, like yeah. being a killer versus being killed. But mm-hmm. so much is happening. Like you had this precision death and this woman is a sloppy killer. Yeah. You know, you have this and she has that. I feel like even up to the East and West Coast, like oh they were gosh. mirror mm-hmm. images of one another's lives. Yeah, they were. And, you know, even like when they were young, like <laughs> their dad, Leo and Cleo, you mm-hmm. know, but like they left, you know, they to go to a warmer place, a warmer place there. There have single moms, at least, you know, Eileen did for a little the bit portion you know? of the time. Yeah. And they I think they both did feel kind of abandoned, but. Beth turned it into like, you know, well, I'm a popular girl. I'm going to have fun. Like everyone at her school, like they even wrote in her yearbook, like they called her like the, I don't know, it's like Marlene Dietrich or something of their school. Cause mm. they're like, she's so popular. She's so fun. Like she's going to be somebody, but being abandoned and left for Eileen made her a social pariah. Cause I think she didn't trust anybody, you know? And I think that we're seeing with them, like, there are so many different ways that like your life can go, you know? And I feel like they both kind of like in their teenage years were like, yeah, whatever's going on here, like, isn't for me. Mm-hmm. You know, they both made the decision to kind of leave home early. And, you know, it's interesting too, that we see Eileen who actually was a sex worker and like found that like, that was a good way to get by. And like Beth is always labeled as one but she never actually was one, mm-hmm. you know? Right. I think the whole story in all cases really highlights the double standards mm-hmm. of society more than yeah. anything. That's how I kept feeling because mm-hmm. in Eileen's story, you have a low class girl growing up traumatized and taking revenge on blue collar men very sloppily in the only way she knows how. Mm -hmm. And in Beth's story, you have, you know, the, the American dream girl who gets herself to California and it's like one day she's going to make it. She's going to find, you know, the person who wants to make her a star or like, she'll be fine. But the way that men kill is slow, sadistic Mm -hmm. and planned. And you can get away with it Mm -hmm. because you can bribe the police or you have a secret room in your house Mm -hmm. or you have a friend who will keep their mouth shut. It is so different. Like, I think like if we look at the killers being male and female and the victims being male and female, Mm -hmm. it highlights the double standards of society in a disgusting way. I absolutely think so. Cause I, I totally agree with you because the right off the bat, they're like, well, the person who killed her must be a doctor, you know? And it's like, you're already putting like the mastermind who did this in this upper echelon of society, you know, and then, and not even putting him there. He is there. Yeah, he is there. Frankly. That murder like, was, <laughs> that murder was cleanly done. Yes, it was. It yeah. is a man murder. They knew to wipe it down with gasoline. They knew this, they knew that like there's almost a privilege to getting a, that there is a privilege. I'm sorry. I didn't mean there 
almost is. There absolutely is a privilege to getting away with it. Yeah. Because the fact of the matter is Eileen didn't get away with it. Elizabeth's murderer did get away with it because there is clearly a class difference. And I do think that we also have to talk about the grander systems at work and how, frankly, they failed both of them, but in different ways. Oh, God, yeah. Someone should have intervened in life before the crimes for Eileen. There were so many cries for help. I just think of her in the hospital, like telling them, be like, hey, I don't want to be here. This is not my first time trying to commit suicide. And they're just like, all right, back you go. Like, good luck, you know? And it's like, can no one help her? Is no one seeing that, like, this teenage girl is, like, trading, like, sex for gum? Like, what the fuck? Like, Where's why? Arlene then? Where are all Where the churches? Are, <laughs> yes, trying to adopt these kids? Stepping in? And then I also think about, like, we failed Beth after she was living. We failed her in death, you know, or, like, there were rumors spread about her and nobody can get her story straight. We're letting people buy their way out of culpability. Mm. Like we're literally allowing the rich men to get away with it because they can. They Mm -hmm. can pay for evidence to be thrown away and covered up and whatever. And you know what? Maybe it's none of the men we talked about it, but it's obviously a man with some influence and some power who has that. Yeah, power to stay anonymous. And, and it's so pa- frustrating. And the power to walk away from murdering people. Yeah. Like, because if this is the only murder that happened with, like, exactly this MO, like, mm-hmm. maybe it was another serial killer she had a run-in with. Maybe it's not. But he had the power to walk away mm-hmm. and, like, possibly tease and send notes. Yeah. Eileen doesn't have that power. Mm-hmm. Eileen is still a sex worker. Mm-hmm. She is still in danger. And yeah. just that quote of, there's only one that actually raped me. The others were about to. Mm-hmm. That's a scary sentence. Yeah. Like, to, to I don't want this to happen to me again. Mm-hmm. And it's like, I don't know that it's 100% true. I don't know that all of those men were being violent with her. But they could have been. Yeah. They absolutely could have been. I won't put that past her because mm-hmm. she had sex with lots of dudes. So, yeah. I don't yeah. know. One, it's interesting, too, that there's also other people latching onto their story for fame and mm-hmm. money in their own right. Like, I mm-hmm. think about that couple that adopted Eileen so they could do that. And I think about Steve Hodel and there was like another woman who wrote a book called like my dad killed the black Dahlia. And like people read the book and they're like, no, he didn't like nothing in this whole book that is like worthy. Like that, you know what I'm saying? It doesn't make sense. People just latching on to try and make a buck and make a name for themselves. And it's so, frustrating Mm -hmm. you know and i don't know i just i think that there's a a a lot of disrespect going on for women in life and in death in both of our stories you know and i'm not saying that like you know eileen's a bad person oh she also terrible person but it's you can't ignore the fact that like she did not have a fucking chance like no there was no chance you know yeah like and it sucks, too, because she wasn't a person who wasn't 
clearly needing help. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's obvious not, that somebody it's not should like have. People stepped are like, "Wow, I never knew." And it's yeah. like everybody knew. <laughs> yeah, everybody knew. Everybody was talking about it. Everybody in the documentary wasn't like. And that's funny because a lot of times when it's like a male serial killer, they'll be like, "He was so nice." He Nobody says next that about it. Nobody says that. Everybody's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. She was fucking my brother at 10 years old. Yeah. And she, yeah, like you said, for a stick of gum, like, which is crazy because you even talked about um, Beth, like, flirting to get mm-hmm. food. And it's like, they're both survival flirting. Yeah. They, like, they are working their looks to get their basic needs met. And sometimes it's like women do have to do that because that's what's at their disposal, especially Mm -hmm. at this time period. Yeah. Yeah. They, they were just surviving the only ways that they knew how. And it's also interesting to me that there are a lot of people too, that paint like people are like, well, she was, you know, Elizabeth short was like an extra in a ton of movies. And it's like, no, she wasn't. No, she wasn't like, <laughs> you're just, you're telling the story. Uh, yeah. You're telling the yeah. story the way you wanted it to happen mm-hmm. because you want to romanticize it and nobody wants to romanticize Eileen Wardos. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. We want to make her story as brutal as possible mm-hmm. because she as this, you know, very like damaged person doesn't matter to us, you know? And it's like, She's a bad person, but also like she had a lot of bad shit done to her and we can't separate the two. Yeah. And now, both like we said in both like yeah. both can exist at the same time. Uh-huh. Yeah. Like I mean, it's just like we said in your story when it's like, you know, the nobody wants to think the good girl mm-hmm. got killed. Nobody wants to paint this murderer as needing help. Yeah. But it's like she clearly needed help. Yeah. All right. Let's do better, everybody. (laughs) Are you ready to toast this? Yeah, let's toast. Who would you like to toast? I just want to toast people that are lost in the system. Mm -hmm. I, there's a lot of people who are failed every day, Mm -hmm. all the time. And I mean, you could watch countless documentaries about it, or you could just walk into any school, hospital, you know, social work area, Mm -hmm. like anywhere you go, like you're going to see people failing because there's just too many people and not enough money and resources. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, like when people say defund the police, like they don't mean stop the police. They mean like we need to give this money to people who can help the people who are struggling. Right. So it's more like reallocate the funds of the police. Yeah. Like, <laughs> let's, let's share this money with people who can actually. Every time. I don't understand. Okay. All right. I am going to toast women who are sexualized in death and women whose murders go unsolved and just aren't care. Like I feel like we don't care about who Beth was. We only care about the black Dahlia, you know, and that really fucking bothers me. Mm. Um, because I feel like if we cared more about Beth, then maybe we could have solved her murder. Yeah. And there are a lot of women like that. Like we did a whole episode on the missing and murdered indigenous women that like, nobody fucking cares about solving those murders or just about their lives or just about their lives or their families or whatever. So yeah, to the women whose murders go unsolved. Cheers. All right. On a lighter note, what are you enjoying in pop culture this week? (laughs) Okay. So, you know, the producer and I watch pretty much all documentaries. Mm -hmm. That was the one thing that when sister moved in, she was like, I cannot believe (laughs) 
how many documentaries you guys watch. Yeah. I also think it's crazy. It, I <laughs> love it. It doesn't matter what it's about. I'm so interested in it. I don't know why. So is he. We're just fountains of information. That's why I know so many random fucking yeah. facts on this show. But we kind of like have run through a lot of the ones we're interested in on Netflix. And we've run through a lot of them on Disney Plus and Amazon Prime. And it was like, you know what? We have other streaming services. So yeah. we just recently started watching like a lot of the episodic ones that are on Hulu and they have really good just in general really good episodic documentaries yeah and there's like not one specific island one and it was so good the fire island one is great and there's there's just a lot on there that I I sometimes forget that I have it Mm -hmm. I sometimes forget I have prime video you know and I just like because I'm used to just clicking certain buttons so I just if you have Hulu because you have Disney plus like Give it a second look when you're like stuck on a Friday night. I love Hulu. I am always on Hulu. Yeah. I just, I forget (laughs) it's there sometimes and I have found that it is fine. Perfect. (laughs) What are you into? All right. I know I've done this before, but I'm going to do it again because it's spooky season. I'm going to recommend Practical Magic. It's my favorite Halloween movie. Casey and I watched it last week and it held up so well. (laughs) My God. No one is more beautiful than Sandra Bullock in this movie. She's so gorgeous. Her hair is so good. It's got Rizzo. It's got Nicole Kidman. I mean, it's got a young Evan Rachel Wood. This movie has everything. Yeah. It's so good. It is very good. And I honestly, I was watching it this past week, and I was like, you know what this is? This is a spooky Hallmark movie. Mm. This is if a Hallmark romantic fall film had a baby with a horror movie that's what it is (laughs) that's practical magic that's practical magic and i also love that like you know spoiler alert like i was really thinking about this time i was like the whole the the relationship that they needed to heal was with the people of the town Mm. you know and i love that like that's what kind of fixes the whole situation i just i love that movie so much and if you haven't seen it well take a look and also, I wish my hair looked like that. Um, and <laughs> that's it. Practical magic. Practical it's magic. So Here we good. go. That's it. All right. Find us everywhere. Please do. We're on all the social media accounts. We have a patron for mm-hmm. as little as $1 a month. You can get extra, mm-hmm. extra, extra, which tonight we're going to talk about our biggest fears <gasps> because it's Halloween spook spook. Interesting. And our patron episodes come out on Mondays, so it'll be actual Halloween when people hear that. Yay. Well, we hope you enjoyed and we hope that you're staying safe this spooky season. Um, but mostly we want you to never forget that well-behaved women don't get murdered. Yeah. <laughs> Apparently. That's what we all like to think. Uh, and they really make history. Goodbye. Goodbye. You've been 
listening to Her Story on the Rocks. We are independently produced by 1986 Entertainment and proudly recorded in Baltimore, Maryland. If there's a woman in history you would like us to cover, you can email us at herstoryontherocks at gmail.com. You can also message us on Twitter or Instagram. We post all of our cocktail recipes on Tuesdays so that you can go get all the supplies you need and drink along with us. See you next week. Bye.